This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg He explained the connection between the blessings of the Shema and the Shema because the blessings of the Shema are unique, unlike any other blessing. There's no real connection between the blessing and the performance of a mitzvah. When you, before you do a mitzvah, you make a blessing. Thank you, God, for giving me the opportunity to put on tefillin, to light the candle, whatever the, the mitzvah is, to sit in the sukkah, to eat the matzah. But here, the blessing of the Shema is called the blessing of the Shema, although we don't make a blessing, thank you for giving me the mitzvah, the commandment of reading the Shema. We don't make a, that's not the blessing. And that's why you could do one without the other, really. One is not really connected with the other, and yet they're called the blessings of the Shema. Why? Because the blessings of the Shema prepare us to fulfill the mitzvah of Shema. The mitzvah of Shema is not just, as we say in the morning, Hear, O Israel, God is my God. It's not just the reciting of the words. It's to fulfill the, as we say I love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. So it's very difficult for us to develop that love. You know, we're earthy beings, earthbound beings, and it's very difficult for us to naturally and instinctively love, have a relationship with with godliness, with something that's apparently intangible to us. So before the times of the Second Temple, they didn't need any preparations. They said the Shema, and they immediately connected and consciously felt the love. We, we say the Shema, and Shema means listen, but it goes in one ear and it goes out the other ear. It doesn't leave any impression. It doesn't affect us, it doesn't impact us. We remain indifferent, just like we were before the Shema. We, we had no connection with godliness. We read the Shema, and we still have no connection with godliness. Consciously, we don't feel, we don't sense anything. So in order to develop a relationship, a real feeling, the rabbi said we need an introduction. And these are the two blessings of the Shema, in the morning and in the evening. In the morning, it's much more elaborate, and that's why he elaborates here about the morning. Because once you develop uh, um, the Shema, once you develop that relationship, then... In the evening, it's much easier to summon it up. You don't need any long introductions. Because all day, you're still under the influence. You're still under the impression of the morning. The morning sets the tone. You know, at the beginning of the day, you set the tone for the whole day. The afternoon prayer, you don't need any introductions. Because the act of sacrifice, self-sacrifice, tearing yourself away in the middle of your business, in the middle of the day, smack in the middle of the day, you stop and pray to God Hashem, that alone is enough to prepare you. You don't need any preparations. You're ready to go straight to the king, straight to the point. You don't need any preliminaries, you don't need any introductions, any prefaces. 
that act of tearing yourself away in your youth, in the heat of the moment, you're in the middle of the business, and you tear yourself away and talk to Hashem, you're ready. But in the morning, you need that lengthy introduction in order to cultivate and to develop a feeling for godliness. The end of the day, as you're about to retire, you need, it's already the end of the day, you need a reflection, but not as much as you need in the beginning because you're still under the impression, the influence of the beginning of the day. But basically, the end of the day, the, the evening prayers, even though it's very short blessings, but they're basically a variation of this theme. But he focuses here on the morning blessings. First blessing, we talk about the angels. Concentrate on the angels, on the greater creatures, creatures that are above us, that are greater than us. The angels are spiritual beings. And what are the angels consumed by? What are they so passionate about? They're constantly praising Hashem. And they sing, Kadesh, 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 holy, holy, holy. What does holy mean? Holy means transcendent. That God is transcendent, God is beyond them, beyond their comprehension. So it's not that they say we understand that God is, how God is beyond us. They don't understand because God is transcendent, God is beyond their comprehension, even the level of comprehension of an angel. As awesome as a level of comprehension as an angel is, the Talmud says one angel is the equivalent of a third of the world. If you took all the brains of the world and put them together, <laughs> One angel's brain is, is, is the equivalent of a third of the world. So imagine you're stringing together hundreds of Nobel Prize winners and put, put 100 Einsteins together, and maybe you'll get the mind, the brain of, a, of an angel. That's why they say like the first contraction involves angels and intelligence. Right. Right. We learned earlier. So... You know, it's like our physics, our modern physics, the physics of, uh, you know, you just imagine the physics as they understand the reality of, you know, the higher dimension, the dimension of the angels. You know, we make our physics look like a kindergarten, a child play. Our whole understanding, our sophisticated understanding of the universe is so, is nothing in comparison to the level of the angels, that, that realm, that world, their understanding of reality. So beyond us. And yet, even as great as the level of the, of the intellect of an angel is, pure spiritual being, unencumbered by a physical body, the angel knows that it doesn't know. God is beyond their comprehension. And that's why they get all excited, because they want to connect with the divine. They feel outside. They feel, as much as they understand... They're outsiders. They don't understand. They understand nothing. The more you understand, the more you understand, now you understand nothing. Your whole understanding is nothing in comparison because you can't grasp God. God is totally beyond their comprehension. And they realize, where is God found? Ironically and paradoxically, God is found here on earth. God is here. Because God has chosen Jewish people and he has married he has married us at Mount Sinai he has married us and God's essence is found not in the heavens not in the heaven of heavens where is God's essence found? here on earth so they are jealous of us the angels are jealous of us envious of us 
because they cannot grasp they don't have the tools with which to connect with God they've been meditating 24-7 <laughs> uninterrupted no coffee breaks no sleeping breaks no eating breaks 24-7 pure spiritual beings higher levels of consciousness and what did they come up with? we know nothing God is Kaddish God is transcendent God is beyond us and where is God found in this world not in the heaven and then we follow with the second blessing and that's what we're about to learn that this transcendent God who's totally beyond grasp beyond comprehension beyond the realm of intellect even angelic intellect even (laughs) pure sublime heavenly spiritual intellect and comprehension. We don't even have the tools with which to grasp God. It's not that we don't know God. We don't even have. We, that's an, we can't even say that we don't know God. We can't even say that God is beyond them because we don't even have the tools with which to know God. God is completely beyond because we're not God. We don't have it within us. Just like you can't describe to a blind person who's born blind. Can you describe what sight is like? Never. He has no clue he doesn't have it within him. He can't understand something he don't have. We're not God. We can't understand God. And all the spiritual beings. There's no connection. And yet, God has chosen us, invested himself in us, married us, became intimate with us, connected with us. And so much so, Every single Jew can say, my God. Just like we say the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. We say, when we make a blessing, we do a mitzvah, we say, Baruch Atah Hashem Elokeinu, my God. And through being my God, he becomes Melech Olam, the king of the universe. And this is what a relationship is. I heard a story, there was a, uh, a child who grew up he was observant, but he um, he grew up in a, in a non non observant environment, and his mother told him that this he can't eat kosher food. He can't eat non kosher. You know, and all the kids knew, and they teased him that you know he was different he would never eat all the candies and chocolate bars they all ate I'm sorry I'm, I'm kosher and he couldn't eat anyway one day um, they went on a trip and you know they, they were hiking all day and you know they were very tired hungry thirsty and they stopped they stopped somewhere to eat and they were given stopped at a farm and, and the farmer gave them uh, milk fresh cold milk and they were about to drink the milk and the farmer says you know I got this milk this is delicious fresh milk I just milked the pig and uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
Hey, the poor kid. He was looking forward to this fresh cold drink. And um, he didn't have the mood to, wasn't the mood to explain, have to explain to his friends again why he's not drinking the milk. So without anyone watching, he noticed he just poured out <laughs> the cup. You know, can't drink the milk. Anyway, later on, when he comes to see his mother, he sees his mother, yells out, he says, Ma, I'm still yours. I'm still connected to you. I didn't drink the milk. In other words, there's a marriage, there's a relationship. I'm faithful, I'm yours. Just like you're mine, you belong to me, I belong to you. That's what Judaism is about. It's a marriage, it's a relationship. It's right, it's wrong, it's... There's a connection, it's personal. It's not just rules and laws. Don't do this and do this. It's much deeper than that. It's much more intimate. Like we say in every blessing we learned earlier, Baruch Atah Hashem, Elokeinu Melech, Olam, blessed are you Hashem, Asher Kiddushanu. Kiddushanu means you married us. So you belong to us. And we belong to you. We're faithful to you. We're connected to you. I did not disconnect myself from you. You ask me to be faithful, and I'm faithful. I belong to you. And that's why I can't sin. And that's why I do the mitzvah. Ultimately, because I'm yours. I'm married to you. I'm connected to you. So Hashem invested Himself at Mount Sinai, Revelation. Hashem invested Himself in the Torah. And He invested Himself within us. Personally, chose us. And He invested Himself. And therefore, we belong to Him. We're connected. We're His. And we can't help but reciprocate that connection. Just like Hashem invested Himself in us, abandoned the heaven and the heaven of heavens. And who did He choose to marry? Who did He choose to associate Himself with? Who did He choose to be intimate with? With us. So we can't help but love Hashem in kind. Just can't help. Imagine if someone great fell in love with you. Or was attracted to you. No one else. You think you would have a problem loving them back? <laughs> Could you help yourself? The greatest genius in the world, or the most powerful person in the world, the wealthiest person in the world, suddenly was attracted to you and you only, and loved you and you only. You think you would have a problem loving them back? Think you can help you help yourself? Yeah, you would. The heart would melt. Me, out of all people, especially I'm the least worthy and the least. And yet, God fell in love with me and associated Himself with me, not because I'm so sublime and I'm so great, I'm so special. We're in the lowest of all the worlds. We're the most physical. We're the coarsest, the crassest most spiritually dense. And yet, in this world, God fell in love with us. Not the angels. Not the heavenly beings. No, it's physical beings. God associates himself. He marries us. He's intimate with us. 
we can't help but reciprocate. See, even someone who's not a tzaddik, even someone who's not naturally sensitive and in tune, fine-tuned and in tune with godliness, especially because we're not a tzaddik, that only highlights and emphasizes how powerful this love is, that despite my lowliness, despite that I'm such an earth, earthy being, I'm such an egotistical earthy being, and despite the fact that I'm so human and down to earth and so unspurred, and yet, God loves me, married to me, intimate with me, associates himself with me, connects himself with me. How can I help my heart melt? How can I help myself? but respond with a passionate, fiery love. So this is the second blessing that really brings it home. It's a continuation of the first blessing, and this is the preparation that enables us to fulfill the Shema. What's the Shema? Not just proclaiming that God is one. It's, fulfill, it's as a result, bringing yourself and experiencing a love for God, a love for godliness, a love for Hashem. How could we, ordinary, average human beings, achieve such a love I'm not talking about the one in a thousand who meditates all day, spiritual, spiritually inclined. We're talking about the average person. Torah was given to every, every person, everyday person. The cobbler, the tailor, the, the, the lawyer, the doctor. Who, how can we develop a relationship, a sensitivity, a love for Hashem? I mean, is the Torah kidding? Yeah, we love ice cream. We're going to love, we're going to start, we love material things. We're going to love God and love godly things with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might. Is this a, real, a realistic program for real people living in the, in the real world? The Upper East Side, 2010, and we say it every morning. But this is how you, this is how the Torah, that's why the rabbis instituted these blessings, and that's why they're called the blessings of the Shema, because they, are the, they help us reach that point by just reflecting and just being aware of that bond and that connection and how astonishing it is that God fell in love with us and is in love with us and is intimate with us and connects with us and cares about us and associates himself with us and we are his we can't help but respond in kind and that's what the second blessing is all about okay um, page 733 second paragraph from the bottom then follows the second blessing then follows the second blessing declares Hashem's great love of the Jewish people, notwithstanding the lofty service and subjugation of all the heavenly angels, Hashem saw fit to set them all aside, as it were, choosing instead to delight in the service of His people below. The blessing begins, Lord our God, you have loved us with everlasting love, that is to say, and he set aside all the supernal holy hosts, the heavenly angels, for they are not the ultimate intent of creation, and caused his Shekinah to dwell upon us, the Jewish people, so that he be called our God, in the same sense that he is called the God of Abraham, as explained earlier. Abraham was completely nullified to God. To the same degree that God is called the God of Abraham, he is also called our God. This is accomplished, as explained earlier, through the performance of Torah and Mitzvah. This is because love impels the flesh. Love affects concealment and contractions. 
so too did God's love for his people bring about a certain contraction in that he chose the service of the Jewish souls in the state in which they are found here below, enclosed in physical bodies and in, in the finite world. Therefore, this love on God's part is called Avat Ola, literally, a love of the world, for it refers to the contraction of his great and infinite light by assuming the garb of finitude, which is called Olam, world, the concept of world signifying the finitude of space and time. God brought about this contraction for the sake of his love for his people Yisrael, in order to bring them near to him, that they might be absorbed into his blessed unity and oneness through Torah and Mitzvah. So, Olam means a world, a limited world. But the, the fact that the world is limited is actually the ultimate expression of God's love, infinite love for us. The fact that He enabled us to connect with Him. He contracted Himself through the Torah and the mitzvot, which are all very tangible, and the Torah speaks in a language that we can relate to the Torah you know, God contracted His infinite light into the words and letters of the Torah, into the concepts of the Torah, enabling us to wrap our mind around the Torah, enabling us to do the mitzvot, the mitzvot are all practical, doable, um, have very, a very specific, the mitzvot are very specific, when you light the candle and how you light the candle and when you put on the tefillah and all the mitzvot, but these are all practical things that we can all, we can all do and this is God contracting and limiting and concentrating Himself in this finite world in order to enable us to connect with Him. So God contracted His infinite self without diluting and compromising His infinite self. On the contrary, this is the ultimate expression of God's love and God's infinite self, that He's able to contract Himself and invest Himself even in, in a limited way, what appears to be limited, but actually it's not limited. With this, these Torah mitzvot are divine. When you study Torah and you do a mitzvah, you're touching the divine, you're touching the infinite. But God gave us, contracted Himself and con- con- concentrated Himself in a language in order that we should be able to connect with it. So God went through all these contractions and He brought the Torah and the mitzvot on a human level, on a practical level, on an earthly level, on a down-to-earth, day-to-day level. Every day of our lives, we can connect with Hashem. This is the ultimate act of love, the ultimate act of Hashem's infinite self. So, although overtly it's an act of hiding, concealment, concentration, contraction, but what's beneath it, what's underneath it, what's underlying it, the inner dynamic is actually it's the ultimate act of love. Because Hashem's infinite love for us, that's why He gave us tools with which to connect with Him without destroying us, without overwhelming us. Because God could reveal His infinite light and he would totally obliterate us. We would cease to exist. It's too intense. Just like you can't look at the sun. It's too intense. You can't look directly at the sun. It's too powerful. So God would reveal his infinite light directly. He would completely obliterate us. So out of his infinite love for us, he concentrated. His infinite light, Torah, mitzvot, he gave us a language with which we can connect with Hashem 
in a way that we can absorb, in a way that we can handle without destroying us on the contrary. So this ability to concentrate this infinite light in a very limited, narrow, confined world, this is the ultimate act of love. It's the ultimate presence of Hashem. In his, in his symptoms, his ability to, to limit himself, to concentrate himself, and to, is really the ultimate act of, the ultimate presence of Hashem. So, it's not only that God also could be found in this world, in this physical world. On the contrary, it's only in this physical world that God could be found. God cannot be found in heaven. God cannot be found in the spiritual realm. Not through meditation, and not through religiosity, and not through philosophy, and not through higher levels of consciousness. As the angels recognize, as we said in the first blessing, God is holy. With all our meditation, with all our spirituality, with all our understanding, God is completely transcendent. The only place where God is found is in this physical world. Oh. Our world. Because it's only in the symptom where God completely contracted himself and concentrated himself. Here you see God's infinite love, the depth of his love. You see his, 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 he invested himself, so to speak. He invested his essence. It's in the act of concentration that actually it's a much greater presence. The act of concealment and concentration is a much greater presence than the act of self-expression. Self-restraint is much more telling of a person than self-expression. You want to know what a person is all about. Character. It's not what, not what they do, it's what they don't do. It's not what they say, it's what they won't say. The restraint, the ability to restrain, the ability to... There's much more presence there than in overt self-expression. Heaven is like God's self-expression. But that's... that's ultimately, it doesn't really get... It's not as intimate. It doesn't really get to the essence of God. It's from God hiding Himself, and concealing Himself, and concentrating Himself. That's the ultimate act of love. That's where you're touching God's essence. That's where it gets personal. So it's not only that God is also found in the material. To God, there is no differentiation between spiritual and material, as we learned earlier. But it's much deeper than that. It's only in the physical. This is where you see the essence of God. This is the ultimate, intimate self-expression of God. The ultimate act of love. God hiding and removing himself, so to speak. And giving us the space and allowing us to exist without overwhelming us, without destroying us. And then concentrating himself and revealing himself to us in a way that we can absorb without destroying us. By studying Torah, doing mitzvot, we are absorbed in the infinite, and yet it doesn't destroy our being, it doesn't destroy our existence. So it's like a marriage. A marriage is where one spouse leaves the space, gives the space, leaves the space and allows a space for the spouse to exist. You don't overwhelm your spouse with your presence. Marriage is based on Self-removal, removing yourself, allowing, creating a space, allowing that space for your spouse. And, and focusing on them, not on you. So this is the ultimate, this is the marriage between the Jewish people and God, that God removed himself. You know, marriage, as the Zohar says, is two half-souls that reunite and are married. 
So marriage is the act of removing yourself and creating the space and allowing for your, for your partner. And it's about them. So God, so to speak, removed himself, created the space which enables us to exist separate, apart from God. At least consciously we feel we're separate and apart from God. And allows us to willingly and deliberately be able to choose God. God doesn't overwhelm us. He's not a dictator. It's a relationship. It's a marriage. He's a king. He wants us to willingly coronate him as a king. He wants us to willingly enter into this relationship. So this act is the ultimate act of love. That God trusts us, has confidence in us, without overwhelming us. He gave us the greatest gift of all. And that is, as he's going to explain, the gift. He gave us the gift of choice. We're the only creature in the universe that has freedom of choice. Angels have no choice. They're almost robotic. They have no choice. God's presence is so overwhelming that they have no choice. Animals have no choice. Animals are creatures of instinct. They have no choice. We are the only creature in the universe that has choice. Genuine choice. We have to choose. We can choose and wreak havoc with our choices. We can really mess things up big time. But it's only because of that that when we do choose the right thing, it's so much more meaningful. We choose to do the right thing. It's our choice. That choice is so precious and that choice is priceless and so meaningful. So God steps back, so to speak, and gives us that ability to choose. Our urge and instinct pushes us in one direction. And we have a choice to overcome our urgency, to choose godliness, to choose truth over lies, to choose good over evil, kindness over cruelty, selflessness over self-absorption. We have that choice. We can overcome our instinct. And that's what love of Hashem is all about. You love Hashem with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. It means overcoming your instinct. Your instinct naturally, instinctively pulls you down, pulls you in the direction of materialism, self-absorption, instant gratification. Don't think of anything beyond yourself. Don't think of anything beyond the moment. And the love of Hashem pulls you in the exact opposite direction. We're part of something greater than ourselves. Make every moment count. Make every moment an, an eternal moment. Connected with all previous moments and all future moments. You have a choice. You don't have to live like an animal. You don't have to live naturally, instinctively. The 20 million recovering alcoholics perhaps were born with a gene for alcohol. So... 20 million people in America chose not to follow that gene and instinct. We're not animals. of We're not animals. We don't have to follow our instinct. We have that ability to choose. 
choose a self-destructive lifestyle or choose a meaningful lifestyle. But it's that choice that's so meaningful. We're the only ones who have that choice. And that choice is so personal. Because it's only when you choose, when you do something out of choice, not because you're following your habit, you're following your instinct, then you're just a machine, then you're just a robot, then you're just following your urge and instinct. Choice is personal. You choose something, it's very, very personal. And the only one who chooses, the only one who has the ability to choose is God. And God chose us. And that's a very personal choice. And we in turn choose. We also make a personal choice. It's personal. It's person to person. It's, it's, it's where our essence touches the essence of God. That's the marriage. That's the intimacy. When you choose, it's the most personal thing in the world. When you choose to overcome your instinct and do the right thing. Why are you doing this? You're only doing this because you have a personal relationship with God. It's very personal. That's when we become intimate with God and that's the marriage to God. And as we're going to learn, you know, choice touches us in a very, very deep place. This is also the meaning of what we say a little later on in the same blessing of Ahavat Olam and in connection thereto exceedingly abounding compassion, which means more than you have bestowed upon others, have you bestowed upon us. Namely, seeing the, the nearness of God towards all the hosts above. God's near, nearness to them comes out of his, his sense of compassion for them. This can in no way compared to the compassion God feels for us, for which reason he draws us closer to him. The same blessing, Ahavat Olam, then goes on say. Yesera means an exceeding compassion. Exceeding, exceeding what? He's referring to what he said earlier. Exceeding even the closeness that the angels feel to God. Because God's love for us is so much deeper, so much more intimate than his relationship and his connection to the angels. And you have chosen us from among all nations and tongues. This refers to the material body, which in its corporeal aspects is similar to the bodies of the Gentiles of the world. True freedom of choice can only come about when one has two completely equal choices. When two things, however, are unequal, one does not freely choose one over the other. is similar to the body of non-Jews. God freely chose Jewish bodies to be the proper receptacle for Jewish souls, desiring that through the deeds performed by the body, 
for all physical mitzvah demand bodily participation. The Jew should become united with him. Which relationship is a more intimate relationship? The relationship of parent and child? Or the relationship between husband and wife? What do you think? <laughs> husband, husband and wife. Husband and wife. Correct. Or it's choose. Exactly. Oh, that's right. You don't choose. Parent-child relationship is natural. You can't help. It's natural. No choice. It's you know, it's not mechanical, but it's 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 natural. It's a piece of you. You love. But husband and wife, it's a personal choice, and that touches of much deeper place and that's why the relationship is not just platonic or emotional psychological or spiritual it's also physical it's every fiber of your being every bone in your body completely and totally connected and one intimate because it, it's choice choice touches your, the essence of your being before Mount Sinai when God sends Moses, go speak to Pharaoh and tell them, let my children go. Let my people go, because the Jewish people are my children. So up until that point, the Jewish people are the children of God. What happened at Mount Sinai, something changed, dramatically changed, and shifted, something new. At the moment, that moment at Mount Sinai, that's when God chose us. That's when he married us. That's what Mount Sinai was. It was a marriage. Just like marriage. Marriage is not just cerebral, abstract, spiritual. Marriage is total, especially physical. At Mount Sinai, God gave us the mitzvah, which are physical. Before Mount Sinai, the physical mitzvah was not important. The emphasis was more on the spiritual. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they were pure spirits. They were spiritual beings. Selfless, egoless. But it wasn't about the physical. They didn't have the ability to do a mitzvah. As great as they were, they did not have the ability to do a mitzvah. It's only at Mount Sinai that God empowered us and gave us the ability to take a physical object, leather hide of an animal, and write a Torah scroll with it and imbue it with holiness. The leather itself becomes holy. Abraham did not have that power. Isaac did not have that power. Jacob did not have that power. No human being has that power. No being, period, has that power. Only God has the ability to create, and he, in, by marrying us, and choosing us, and investing himself in us, empowered every Jew, the simplest Jew, has that ability, which the greatest angels don't have. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't have. Non-Jews don't have this ability. God chose the Jewish people and empowered. The simplest Jew has the ability to take a physical hide of an animal and transform it into something holy and divine and sacred. It's physical, not just this is choice. Choice touches the most intimate place and affects, where do you see it expressed specifically in the physical? The act of intimacy, which is physical, which expresses everything else. Because that's what touches your core, and that's what touches your essence. So anything that touches your core and essence is specifically expressed in the physical, not just external. 
So when you say that God chose the Jewish people, we're not just talking about the soul, the Jewish soul. We're talking specifically about the Jewish body, externally, superficially. What's, what, what makes the Jewish body holy? Body is a body. You go about your life and everyone else goes about their life. You eat and everyone else eats. You sleep and everyone else sleeps. You exercise and everyone else exercises. What, what's, you don't see. There's nothing visible or conscious, consciously holy about the body. The soul, you understand. The sensitivity of the soul, the depth of the soul, the depth of the mind, the depth of the spirit, the intensity. There you can differentiate. There's a soul and there's a soul. There's a soul that vibrates, there's a soul that's in tune, there's a soul, there's a soul, there's a soul. But the body, there's no difference. Externally, this is a body and that's a body. What's the difference? And yet, the essence of the Jewish body, the body, is God chose and God invested himself and chose the Jew. What he's specifically referring to is not so much, not only the Jewish soul, but he's referring to the Jewish body. That God married us. Marriage is intimacy. Intimacy is physical. God chose every fiber of our being, every bone in our body. God chose every part of us, and He chose specifically that the body should be holy, which is why the Torah mitzvot is so invested in the physical. God wants a Jew to lead a holy life. The physical should be holy. What you eat should be holy. Your relationships, your, your intimacy should be holy. Judaism doesn't happen in the synagogue. That's to the synagogue, the Judaism is totally, completely incidental. The bedroom is the holy of holies. It's, it's, it's the physical, it's the body, it's how you carry yourself in your intimate life, how you carry yourself in a day-to-day life. It's what you eat, how the body behaves, what you speak, how you think. Every part of you, your daily life should be holy. Because it's the physical that's holy. The lips should never tell a lie. Never slander another person. Physical lips should never do something wrong. It's about living truthfully and genuinely and honestly. Not just the soul. The body. Physically, your day-to-day life should be consistent. And should be a godly life. Your behavior should be godly. That's why in Judaism the whole emphasis is on behavior. Unlike all other religions where the emphasis is on the spiritual and the, and the heavenly and the sublime, you know, this world is completely incidental, you know. It's all about the other life, the other world. In Judaism, it's the exact opposite. The whole emphasis is on the behavior. You can meditate from today till tomorrow. It's Passover night. And you close your eyes. And you're lost in ecstasy. And you're meditating in the meaning of matzah. And your soul is soaring into heaven. And the whole night passes and, and before you know it and you haven't eaten the matzah. <laughs> what do you have? Zero. Zero. You have a Jew who doesn't know anything about meditation, doesn't know anything about spirituality, couldn't care less about religion, couldn't care about anything. So I said, come eat a piece of matzah. Why not? It tastes good. I haven't had it all year. And he eats the matzah. The bottom line is he has the mitzvah. He has the connection. He has done it. Versus the spiritual, intensely spiritual, religious, philosopher, mystic, has nothing. So you see clearly in Judaism, it's the action, it's the behavior. 
Have your lips moved and told a lie? Have your lips moved and slandered anyone? Or not? It's the physical. It's your daily life, your conduct, the physical. God wants the body. God fell in love. God chose and is attracted to and wants and associates himself with the body, the physical. He wants the body to be whole. He wants our intimate life to be whole. He wants us to be holy, not just spiritually, but through and through. Totally. And that's choice. That's why God gave us that choice. That's the ultimate choice. Only God has the ability to choose. Choice is personal. And God invested himself personally. And who did he give that choice to? To us. Why do we have a choice? Because we have a body. The soul doesn't have a choice. The soul is like the angels. The soul wants to connect with God. It doesn't have a choice. Like a child, a parent and a child. The child can't help but love his parent. Because the, parent is, the child is the parent. So the, the soul within us, the godly soul, is a piece of God. So of course you're connected with God. You can't help it. You don't have a choice. You don't want to be disconnected. You can't be disconnected. But the body has a choice. The body is plain. It's ordinary. The body doesn't respond to spirituality naturally. Our bodies, you know, are not pulled. The body doesn't pull us to shul. The body pulls us elsewhere. <laughs> the body is, you know, we're running off elsewhere. Whether it's Las Vegas, Disney World, wherever we're running to, we're not, the body, our bodies don't naturally run to show the spirituality, to godliness. Our bodies have other things in mind. And that's why we have choice. And that's what God wants. He wants our choice. He wants, because it's only that's the personal touch. It's when you choose and your body chooses to do the right thing. When you love God with all your heart, two hearts, as he said. What do you mean two hearts? That your, your ego, your natural self, your, your hot-blooded and, and, and fun-seeking self will also desire godliness. Your body will desire godliness. Your ego, your natural instinctive soul that wants to live and have fun and enjoy life will suddenly start being attracted to godliness and associating that with godliness. You know, want to have fun, come to Shul. <laughs> <laughs> and you love Hashem with all your all your soul meaning don't allow your, your personal attachments natural attachments there's nothing more natural in your attachments to your spouse and your children but don't allow that to interfere with your godliness don't use that as a as, a, as an excuse to interfere with your relationship with Hashem on the contrary your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your children should all be part of your marriage and relationship with Hashem. So again, that's not natural. Natural and instinctive, this is what I care about. I care deeply about my love and I care deeply about my children. Do I care deeply about God the same way that I care deeply about my, uh, my spouse, my children? So that's, again, you have to make that choice. The body, which naturally and instinctively is not, doesn't have that same powerful feeling, should direct and have that same intense love for Hashem. Realize that everything in this world is just an analogy to help us relate with Hashem. And we can wear many different hats because there are many different types of relationship. And every type of relationship brings out another facet of our relationship with God. Parent-child relationship. Now we can relate to God as a parent and a child. Husband and wife. Now we can relate to God just like husband and wife love each other with the same love, attraction, and intensity. 
And the same is with all relationships in life. Everything in life is just a way, a parable, to help us relate to God in, the, in, in that same way. Uh, servant, master, uh, soldier, king, uh, subject, king, whatever it is, employee, employer, anything in this world is really just a parable to help us develop another aspect of our relationship with God, which is how the commentaries explain. It says that when Jacob met Joseph after being separated for 22 years, thinking that Joseph is dead, and then realizing at the age, at his age, age of 130, realizing that Joseph is alive and he's the king of the world, you can imagine his love and his yearning for his son, his beloved son, his favorite son. So the Torah says, what happens when they meet? He comes down to Egypt. So Joseph burst out. He couldn't help contain himself. He comes and hugs his father and kisses his father and cries. But the Torah doesn't tell us that Jacob hugged and kissed Joseph. The Torah is silent. Obviously he did, but why is the Torah silent? So, so, so the Torah says, the Talmud says, that Yaakov was busy reading the Shema. At that moment, he was, re- reading, he was busy fulfilling the mitzvah of Shema. And therefore, he couldn't interrupt. That's the technical reading of what the Talmud says. So J- Joseph had a mitzvah to honor your parent. So therefore, he, he had to hug his father. But his father was busy reading the Shema. And therefore, he couldn't interrupt and hug and kiss but the Hasidic masters say what this means on a deeper level, what the Torah is telling us is, it sounds very inhuman. <laughs> he was mourning for 22 years. He couldn't bear being separated. He couldn't make peace with the fact that Joseph was dead. And then realizing that he's alive and well. And he sees him after 22 years, his beloved son. I, I mean, what, what, how, what, where is his love? And is it, nothing, silence. He said, no, what the, Talmud, what the Torah means, the Torah is saying something very profound. You can't even imagine, we can't even begin to describe the love that Jacob had to Joseph before, before he was taken away from him. And then when he thought he lost him, mourning for 22 years, then he discovers that he's alive and he's running the world and, and he hasn't changed. He's the same Joseph, the same righteous Joseph. The love that he felt, it's indescribable. But Jacob said, wait. What is the mitzvah of Shema? The mitzvah of Shema is to love God. At that moment, Jacob discovered a new depth in love. He never even, he never even knew how powerful, how profound he can love his son. Up until that moment. That moment he experienced such an overwhelming love. A love that he's never experienced ever before. So the first thing he did, he says, wait a minute. If I can love Jacob, the first thing Jacob did is, if I can experience such a level of love, I have to love Hashem with that same level of love. All my love for Hashem till now is nothing. I thought I loved Hashem. That's called love. I've just discovered a new strata, a new depth to love that I never even, you know, that I never even knew even existed. That the heart can love so much. That's the mitzvah of Shema. So he directed that type of love. He discovered a new love for Hashem. So not only isn't it a contradiction for a Jew that the love 
for your spouse, for the love for your children, is God forbid a contradiction to the love of Hashem. On the contrary, when the love of your spouse, love of your children is based on the foundation of your love for Hashem, then there's that added element. Then your love for your spouse and your love for your children is not just a limited human love. Then it's a divine love. Then it's a love that, that's limitless. Because a human love, no matter how, how great it is, ultimately is limited. So I love you, but up until a point. And then, and then you know, I have, I, I'm exhausted. I, I, I reach my limit. You know, please, not now. But a love that's based on divine love, that's infinite. So you have patience for your children, even when you've exhausted your patience. But my responsibility as a parent is to educate my children. That's my divine responsibility. So if I push myself, I can go, it, I discover a new infinite depth in my love, a new infinite depth in my relationship that doesn't exist before. But that's only if your love is found, if your life is based not just on self-absorption and self-interest and self-instinct. In, and and that's very limited. So a person who just follows his instincts and naturally loves his spouse and naturally loves his children, it's a very limited and constricted type of love. It's the greatest love that we know as human beings. But that's a bodily love. And if all it is is body and all it is is ego and all it is is natural and instinctive, it's limited. But when the love, when you choose to have a relationship with Hashem and that even your body becomes attracted and falls in love with Hashem and is attracted to Hashem, and the body can't help but fall in love with Hashem because when Hashem loves us and chose us and became intimate with us and marries us and it's physical, it's not just spiritual fell in love and is attracted and associates himself, his name with our bodies how we behave affects God himself because he's, mar- he's married us he invested himself without any reservation without holding back so to speak, with every fiber of his being, every bone in his body, so to speak. God has completely invested himself with us and associated with himself. Each and every one of us says, Elokein, and God is my personal God. Ten commandments were given in the individual, in the singular, not in the collective. God spoke to each and every one of us. Every Jewish soul stood at Sinai, and God spoke to each and every one of us individually. I am giving you the Torah. I am your God, your personal God. I'm associated. You're mine. I am yours. <laughs> Then how could the body help but respond? God, I am yours. I didn't, I didn't eat, I didn't drink the milk. I didn't do the wrong thing. I did the right thing. I remain faithful to you. I remain connected. You asked me to do something, I did it. You asked me not to do something, I didn't do it because you asked me. I'm yours. Then when that, when your love, when you're reading the Shema and you're able to take those loves, those human loves, and able to um, use it to love the same way physically attracted to your spouse in the same way you physically attract, you're attracted to your children the same way you're connected to your children if you can fulfill the Shema by experiencing that same level of connection and that same level of attraction to Hashem then the love for your children the love for your spouse will be a whole a whole, a whole new dimension of love a whole new depth it has a divine ingredient, a divine aspect. So this is what Yaakov did when Yaakov realized he discovered a whole new level of love. He fulfilled the Shema for the first time in his life in a whole new dimension, a whole new level. That's what it means he was busy Shema. He took this level of love and he 
immediately connected it with Hashem. He was able to love Hashem in a whole new way, a whole new light. And of course, when he turned to Yosef, it was a whole, it was a whole new dimension. It was a whole, a whole new depth of his love for his son Joseph. Doesn't mean, God forbid, he was a cold person and I'm busy shma. Okay, I haven't seen you for 22 years. Okay, I'm busy. Don't bother me. No, no, that's not that's not what the story means. So this is what choice is all about. This is the idea of choice when we say that God shows us. Thanks. He doesn't elaborate here, but the idea of thanks, you know, when you don't understand something, the word thanks in Hebrew comes from the word I admit. When you don't understand something, there's an argument, and you admit, listen, you're right, even though I don't understand it. So ultimately, as much as we understand, there's so much more that we don't understand. God ultimately is beyond our understanding. And therefore, there reaches a point where we say, I admit, I don't understand it. I don't understand the absolute unity of God. I don't understand how is it possible that there's no other reality but God. Ultimately, it's beyond comprehension. But I admit that it's so. How could it be that all there is is God and I don't exist? All there is is God and nothing else exists. What do you mean? It's counterintuitive. <laughs> what am I, chopped liver? I don't understand, but I admit. I admit. That's what admission Admission is when you're dealing with the essence of God, when you're dealing with something that's totally beyond comprehension. The only way to approach it is with humility. I admit. I submit. And I admit. And I'm thankful. And I'm grateful. Even if I don't understand. That's the idea of like an argument. We have our perspective and God has his perspective. And we admit that God's, God's side is the correct side, even though we don't understand it. From our perspective, we exist. The question is, does God exist? What does God's existence mean? From God's perspective, it's the, it's the exact opposite. God is. Period. God is. The question is, do we exist? But God is, that's no question. The question is, what does it mean then that we exist? What meaning does it have? All, all that it, God is and all there is is God. There's no space empty of God. Then where do we fit into this? How could there be a possibility of anything outside of God? So what does existence mean? What does all this mean? Is this an illusion, God forbid? Is this real? How does it all fit in? So that, that's, we have the two perspectives and we say, God, your perspective is right. We admit, we submit that your perspective is right even though we don't fully understand. That's Hoidu. Okay, but that's he's going he's to elaborate elsewhere. Continue. When a thinking person will reflect on these matters in the depths of his heart and brain then surely, as water mirrors the image of a face, when the love likened to water mirroring the image of a face takes effect in the person so that God's manifest love for his, his people arouses in him a corresponding love towards him, his soul will spontaneously be kindled with love for God and it will clothe itself in a spirit of benevolence, willing to lay down and resolutely to abandon all he possesses, for it will no longer be of major importance to him. 
in order only to cleave unto him and to be absorbed into his light with an attachment and longing and so forth in a manner of kissing and with an attachment of spirit to spirit, as has been explained earlier. Just as kissing involves not only cleaving of the mouths, but also communion of breaths, so the spiritual unity involves the union of man's spirit with God. Man's spirit becomes one again. When you realize how God loves us and is intimate with us, and God is kissing us, and we kiss God back in return. And we'll learn next time what that means, that just like the kiss involves also the physical kiss, but it's more important, it's an expression of a love, internal love, that you can't express with words, and you can only express by kissing. When you love someone overwhelmingly, it's not enough just to tell them, I love you, but you have to you express it. Show it, man. You have to show them. You have to express it with a kiss. So too, when a Jew loves Hashem, that he expresses it with his lips by physically mouthing and saying the words of Torah. But that's just an expression of your love, of your spirit connecting to spirit, of your soul connecting with the soul of Hashem. But that, that will, to be continued, we'll learn uh, next time. Anyone has any questions, comments? Mm-hmm. Makes it very clear here why you have to be vocal when saying your prayers. Okay. Right. Because it's the physical act the as physical. well. There it's you physical. go. The physical. That's the choice. But that's why you got a man. You know, you, that's, it's a very physical religion. Very it's physical. very, very earthy, man. Like the act of intimacy, very physical. Because that, that's where the choice is. That's why it's personal. That's why Judaism is all about a personal God. It's not some abstract energies floating. See, I try to tell that to people. They it's have the biggest. But a personal God. It's a personal choice. It's very, very personal. When your body chooses to do the right thing. Your body chooses when your ego, your natural soul, if you choose to do the right thing, say the right thing, speak the right thing, that's very personal. You don't get more personal than that. It's very intimate. And therefore, it's actually the average Jew, not the tzaddik. The tzaddik, in a way, what choice does he really have? The tzaddik is in tune with spirituality. He doesn't have, he's not tempted to do anything wrong. He doesn't have to make those choices. But we, who are down-to-earth and earthy and coarse and crass and in tune with the coarse and crass world that we live in, we have to make those choices, those bodily choices. Are we going to choose godliness? Are we going to choose to do the right thing? Are we going to choose to say the right thing, to think the right thing? Are we going to choose in our daily lives to lead a Jewish life, a godly life, in our personal, private, intimate lives? Are we going to choose to do the right thing or not? This is, this is where it hits home. Is that choice, that's personal. That's person to person. That's intimate to intimate. That's intimacy. That's where we get close to Hashem. That's where the essence touches the essence. And that's only in this world. And that's where the angels are jealous. The angels are envious. They don't know what God looks like. Ironically and paradoxically, where is God found here on earth? In this physical, coarse world. Unlike all other religions. This is so counterintuitive. This, that's why it was a revelation. It was a shocking revelation. Because we would never come to this conclusion. If we meditated for 6,000 years straight, we would never really come to this conclusion that the Torah teaches us. That it's the physical, and it's the deed, and it's the action, and it's our daily lives, and it's the body, it's not the soul, and it's, this is where it's at, and this is the emphasis, and this is where the dynamics is, and this is where the energy is, and this is where the essence of God is found. This is the most private, the most intimate. What? This physical world? This physical world is so coarse and so crass. And the antithesis of everything is truth and genuine and godly and good. Why? We should ignore this world and just focus on the spiritual and the heavenly. Jesus says, no, it's 
the deed, it's the action. This is where it gets personal. Huh? Pragmatic. Practical, yes, yes. It says on page uh, 734 that Hobbit Hobbit is completely nullified yes. and died. Yes. And he did the mitzvah of the circumcision. Is it the circumcision of physical mitzvah? Yes, very good point. Because you said that before Matan Torah. Yes. That was the only mitzvah. That was like a prelude to Matan Torah. That's why he, got, he had to wait till God commanded him. All the other mitzvot he did on his own voluntarily. But Briz, God had to command him. So in that sense, it resembled like Matan Torah. Because Matan Torah was God commanded us. That's why what, what it empowered us. So this was the only mitzvah that Abraham was commanded. It was the only mitzvah that had the ability to actually make it holy and that's why he did become holy that's why when he wanted to swear he asked Eliezer to swear he's going to marry he's only going to marry someone from his own family he'll find the shit of Isaac he, he had to find something holy to hold on to so he says hold on to my bris what's going on here you know hold on to my bris it's not, it's not, it's not modest because that was the only holy thing that he had he didn't have any other holy option that was the only one so God wanted to give Abraham one taste just one prelude one example of what Mount Sinai is all about, and we discuss so this in chapter twenty-three. If you go back, uh, if you go back, uh, in chapter twenty-three in the Tanya, that's where we discuss the idea of the bris, how the bris is representative of the Torah. He was completely nullified. He was completely egoless, as we learned in chapter eighteen. He was completely his whole being was godly and very intense, twenty-four-seven. He was completely egoless. His whole being, he became an, uh, a chariot to God, as the rabbi said. It was an extension of God. But a chariot, not an organ. It's only with the mitzvah that we become an organ of God, like a body to the soul. A chariot is not one with a rider. The body becomes completely inseparable from the soul. That's what we learn in chapter 23. You can go back at great length. Um, that's what a mitzvah is. That's the revolution of Mount Sinai. Here he's saying the idea of intimacy, of personal. It's personal. God became very personal. Where is God personal? Where does God get personal? Only in this world, with the physical body. That's why this world, life in this world is so precious. You have to violate all the mitzvah just to sustain life, even if a person is dying. And he can only save his life for one moment. He's going to live one more moment. You have to desecrate Shabbat. You have to do everything just to give him that extra moment. Because life in this world is so precious. It's the body that's so precious. It's only in the body, in this world, where we have the choice. We can become personal. We can do teshuva. In one split second, you can turn your whole life around. It's this world where we become personal. In heaven, it's too late. Heaven, you don't have those opportunities. Heaven is, is just uh, is external to God. It's this world where God gets personal. Person to person. That's where the soul is to come into this world, into the body. Because this world is so precious. This world is where... We, the meeting place, we rendezvous with God, it's our marriage. So interesting, you know, like uh, in this chapter, because we're dealing with the Simpsonian, you know, that God uh, is overcoming his own obstacles to create this physical world. So in return, we have the capability to not do things in like an orderly way, but all of a sudden, things can change for us. We can overcome obstacles. And I guess it's related to the idea that our obligation 
God could do the impossible. To create a finite, material, coarse, crass world is the impossible. How do you get from infinite, pure, infinite, to this world? So God did the impossible. Right. So you would think to do to live a Jewish life is also the asking for the impossible. To actually lead a Jewish life on our day on a daily basis, our private intimate life on a daily basis, twenty four seven, to speak like a Jew, act like a Jew, to be a God fearing Jew and do the right thing and say the right thing and think the right thing at all times at all places. There are too many obstacles. It's impossible. But God did the impossible out of His love for us and removed Himself just for our sake, for his love for us. So we can't help. We reciprocate in kind. We can also do the impossible and overcome our obstacles and overcome our natural tendencies and urges and instincts. And, and we can harness the body and do the right thing. We can do it for Hashem. It's doable. But there's no, uh, there's no guarantee that we're going to get the blessings that we would all like to have. The Torah promises that eventually every single Jew will do Teshuvah. Every single Jew will make that choice. Teshuvah is the ultimate choice. Because when you've failed and you've um, done the wrong thing, and then you choose on your own to do the right thing, to return, to connect, reconnect, to go come back home. It's the ultimate choice. The Torah promises that eventually every single Jew will do Teshuvah. We'll all come back home. We'll all choose willingly choose to do the right thing. Now it sounds like too intense, too powerful, too overwhelming, too unrealistic. The world that we live in, the people that we know, ourselves, we know ourselves, we are all going to willingly choose to do the right thing, the seemingly impossible, make the right choice and do it willingly. Do teshuva means our choice, we choose to do it. Is this, that's Mashiach. Mashiach is a world that we will choose to do the right thing physical body, the physical, natural, human selves will choose to do the right thing. All of us here, living in the here and now, everything that we're exposed to, it sounds like too intense, too powerful. Is society ready? Is the world ready? Are we ready? Is this realistic? But when you learn Tanya and you learn chapter, these chapters, 46 and 47, 48 and 49, that's why he's, he's explaining to us how it's realistic. When you realize how God loves us and what God did to enable us, and what God is doing, and just for His love for us, so you can't help but love God in return. So whatever obstacles there are, I can overcome. Because when there's love, there's nothing standing in the way. You won't let anything stand in the way. You can overcome and rise and choose and willingly choose. It's choice. God wants our choice. God doesn't want to destroy us. He wants our choice. He wants us to do it willingly. He wants us to want it. Us to do it. Then it's the body. Otherwise, he just overwhelm us. He can overwhelm us and destroy us. But that's not the purpose. The purpose is he wants us. He wants our freedom of choice. He wants our to, do it, to want to do it. Willingly do it. And that's why he created the ultimate setting. This is the world that we live in now. That's why Mashiach is coming in our generation. Because for the first time, we really have a choice. We live in an open marketplace, a free marketplace. Anything goes, everything goes. Everything is, it's, a, it's an open season. Everything goes, anything goes, everything competes equally. And in this environment, when we have the wisdom to choose the right, 
willingly choose the right thing and deliberately choose the right thing and not be overwhelmed and not let any obstacle get in the way, this is, this is the ultimate purpose of creation. That's why God created the whole thing. That was the whole purpose. That's why our generation, we have to fulfill, we have to bring it home. We have to hit that home. We have to bring it home because this is, this is the setting, exactly what God wanted. We have the choice. Up until 200 years ago, you had no choice. What was your choice? You become a Christian? You're either a Christian, a Muslim, or Jewish. What kind of choice is that? Today, for the first time, we have a choice. You can get away with murder. You can do whatever you want. It's a free country. And yet, we choose to do the right. This is, this, is, this is what it was all about. This, the here and now, today, our generation, us. That's why the Rebbe says, we're the last generation of exile. We'll be the first generation of redemption. It's all in our hands. It's up to us. Sometimes you want to cry. Yeah, you vault. <laughs> it's up to us. But God had confidence in us. And He chose us. And He believes in us. That's called blind faith. And, and uh, we are going to hit home. We're going to, you know, we're going to do it. We're going to get it done. It sounds too powerful, too intense. But God says, no, we'll do it. We'll make it happen. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.